listening to Latin Experts, a podcast of Latino studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Latin Experts features the voices of faculty, staff, and students, as well as friends and alumni of the Department of Mexican American and Latina Latino Studies, the Latino Research Institute, and the Center for Mexican American Studies. Join us for this episode of Latin Experts. Episode 20, How Do We Reduce Disparities for Latino Children with Autism Spectrum Disorder? I'm your host, Karma Chavez, and today, as part of our series featuring researchers connected to the Latino Research Institute, I'm looking forward to my conversation with Professor Sandy Magana, someone who I met in Wisconsin when we were both faculty there at UW-Madison in 2010. Now, Professor Magana holds the professorship in Autism and Neurodevelopmental Disabilities in the Steve Hicks School of Social Work here at UT. Magana's research focus is on the cultural context of families who care for persons with disabilities across the life course. And for that work, she has earned numerous grants and awards, too numerous for me to list here. But trust me, she's a rock star. Today, we're going to discuss some of her research related to health disparities, health equity, and Latino children who've been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Professor McGanya, welcome to Latin Experts. Wow, great to be here, Karma. Yeah, I'm excited to have this conversation. And I guess the way I'd like to start out is just to have you talk a little bit about your connection to the Latino Research Institute and how you been began collaborating with folks at the Institute. Absolutely. Yes. And I've only been at UT Austin for four years, going on five. So really excited about that. And I met with and connected with Deborah um, Para Medina right away. But we didn't really start thinking about collaborations till a couple years in. And I know that she does a lot of research with Latinx children and families around health and um, health outcomes and health interventions. So she has just a wealth of expertise there. And so I met with her to talk about a potential grant. So we have a grant called Poder that Dr. Paramedina has joined in on with the LRI. So we're doing it jointly with them and with some folks in, in Chicago at the University of Illinois, Chicago. So this grant really focuses on first trying to identify what are the social determinants of health for Latinx children who have developmental disabilities and their families. And then Secondly, in this upcoming year, we're going to be working on developing an intervention for the children and families. And when you say social determinants of health, what exactly does that mean? Well, what we mean by that is a lot of times health outcomes, at least in the past, have been blamed on people's own health behaviors. You know, you're not healthy because you did all these terrible things, right? That you didn't take care of your health versus really understanding how social things like poverty and housing and discrimination and other social aspects really can lead to poor health outcomes among people in our population. So this leads me then to ask you about clarifying a couple of other terms that I think are a part of this conversation about social determinants of health. Uh, So I hope you could tell us a little bit about how you define the terms health disparities, and what health equity is. Absolutely. So when we say health disparities, uh, 
A lot of people think that, well, that just means differences between one group or another, but really talking about differences that contribute to poor health outcomes among vulnerable populations. And so we're not just talking about differences between men and women or difference between older adults and younger adults. It's more around vulnerable populations like racial and ethnic minorities, um, as well as GLBTQ populations or other, other populations that, when I say vulnerable, you know, they've been minoritized and treated differently in our society. So really, disparities, you really have to um, identify what it is you're looking at. So when we're talking about comparing Latinx families or children to white children and families, we're looking at whether there are differences in health as a result of those vulnerabilities that they may have in society. And then health equity is really, I mean, those terms go hand in hand. So some people say, well, I'm not going to use disparity anymore. I'm going to use equity because that's the new term. Well, no, <laughs> those, those terms actually go together. I mean, equity is about making sure people have equal health outcomes. And so you have to identify what the problems are, where the disparities are, before you can really determine how to make sure people have equitable outcomes. So in some ways, it seems to me that this discussion of feeling anxiety around talking about disparities, but just wanting to talk about equity as part of a, a broader cultural phenomenon to not want to talk about uh, things that might implicate racism or whiteness or white supremacy. Um, and apparently we see that in your research arena too. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like there's sort of this desire to just say, yes, we should all have equal health outcomes and that's great, you know, <laughs> and uh, versus, um, Versus really understanding that there are racial ethnic differences and there are social reasons, you know, for those differences in terms of health outcomes. So I want to primarily talk with you today about autism spectrum disorder, although your work, of course, spans across many different neurodivergences. Uh, mm -hmm. And we may get into some of that, too. But I guess if you could just start out, tell us a little bit about what autism spectrum disorder is. Absolutely. And, and I want to use that term. I mean, that's the technical medical term, right, that the APA manual uh, lays out and there. There's a most recent version, the uh, DSM, I should say, put out by American Psych Psychiatric Association. So the DSM-5 has the most recent sort of definition of autism spectrum disorder. But a lot of people reject that term disorder. And I think that we need to honor that and think about that in terms of um, maybe we should just say autism spectrum or, you know, there are a lot of other terms that people are using neurodivergent, like you mentioned, are important. But some of the things that are identified in terms of challenges or, you know, kind of framing it within the need for support versus deficits, but some people need a greater amount of support and services. Some people need a minimal, some people need small, right? But some of the challenges have to do with social communication. And so that can include interacting with other children or other adults, depending on your age, being able to communicate effectively in that way. Some people who are autistic, and I'm going to use the term autistic because many people on the spectrum identify that way because it's identity first versus person first language. And many people with disabilities are using that identity first language and owning it. And autistic uh, children may have some communication and some uh, children may have no communication, like they can't verbally express themselves. But everybody expresses themselves through gestures and other kinds of ways. And so even children who don't have verbal communication can express themselves in other ways. But 
there are often challenges in that area. So that, that can be anything like if somebody's verbal, having a conversation might be difficult. Maybe somebody uses a lot of repetitive language, repeats what the last person said a lot, or, or maybe the video that they watch over and over again and repeats a lot of the phrases if they're a child from that video. So there are a lot of ways. Maybe they just play alongside of other children, but don't really engage with them if they're a child. So there's a lot of ways that that can be expressed. And then the other aspect or large domain is restrictive and repetitive behaviors. And so for adults, that often means kind of insistence on sameness or wanting to have things in the same order in the same way or the same route that you're going to take, things like that, and really feeling compelled to do that. Another aspect is for young children, there may be things like moving their hands in a certain way that may look odd to other people and being repetitive in that way or or repeating language. I mean, repeating after what other people say is kind of a repetitive aspect as well in the language area. But there are a lot of things like maybe children won't necessarily play with the toy the way that it was intended to be played with, but they might play with it in the way that they want to play with it. Like really fascinated about how the wheel turns around and really getting into that. Right. So we can say that's the wrong way to play with a toy, but maybe that child is really learning something and knows a lot about how that wheel is turning. Right. So those are kind of the two domains. That makes a lot of sense. And I really appreciate that explanation. I wonder if I could just return briefly to something you said, which is that you use identity first versus person first language. uh, And that's why you say autistic child. Could you just explain what that means and what the difference are? Absolutely. So in the human services, social services field for many years, we've been saying you have to use person first language, which means like, person with disability, person with mental illness, person with autism, person with, you know, intellectual disability, whatever it is. The argument behind that was that the person is a person first before their disability. But many adults, as they become advocates for themselves, are saying, no, I want to own autism as part of me. That's part of my identity. You can't take that out of me. That's part of my personality, my behavior. And I embrace that. So I'm autistic. I'm not a person with autism. And so some people feel really strongly about that. And then there are other people who, I mean, you have to be respectful of where people are and what they want to use. Some people would rather use person first language. Many family members and parents prefer that, but many of the self-advocates that are becoming more empowered tend to use that identity first language. I really appreciate you taking the time with that because I do think that is something that people struggle around again with kind of the wanting to get everything right kind of culture. So thank you for taking Mm -hmm. that time. So how prevalent is autism spectrum disorder in Latino communities? So that's an interesting question, prevalence, right? Because there really is no way to determine actual prevalence. It's not like a blood test you can do. Usually autism is determined by a number of behavioral measures and observations that might be done to observe certain characteristics. I personally don't believe that autism is less or more prevalent in the Latino community than in the white community. But if you look at prevalence of diagnosis, then there are some disparities there. So in other words, getting to a diagnosis of autism, it's a very laborious, iterative process that families have to go through and expensive. 
And so if you don't have the resources to get to the right clinic that knows how to diagnose autism, your child may be unidentified and yet still be autistic, right? And so in the Latino community, there are significant differences in terms of identification of autism where they're under-identified compared to white children. The CDC has done surveillance studies. They do them every few years. And I can't remember what the number is now because it keeps changing. I think it's one in 57 children. And it's more like at 1% for, for Latino children in terms of diagnosis. But again, I don't believe that that is actual prevalence. Well, and part of that, of course, is because of the use of the term spectrum, right? So there's, a, as you mentioned, a, a spectrum of behaviors and uh, mm-hmm. communication patterns, et cetera, that might be a part of autism spectrum disorder. But mm-hmm. you know, some of the things you were describing, I was thinking, well, some of my friends who have uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, for example, uh, mm-hmm. exhibit those same behaviors. And so that, that's probably in general what, what can make that challenging. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people with autism overlap with ADHD as well as obsessive compulsive disorder, but, but they have to have criteria in both the communication part and the restrictive repetitive part of it. So they may also overlap with those issues as well. Yeah. And it's a spectrum. And I just want to think about the spectrum in relation to Latinx children is that a lot of times Latino children only get access to services when they are severe. <laughs> and so if you're on the end of the spectrum where maybe you don't need a lot of support and services, you appear to be functioning normally, but you are having some challenges, they're less likely to get identified among Latino children whereas white children tend to be much more heavily identified in that end of the spectrum. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so you're actually uh, pointing right to the next question I was going to ask. So you've named uh, the question of severity, and you've also named the question of poverty and and material resources. But what are some of the other disparities that Latino families face vis-a-vis white families when trying to access care related to autism spectrum disorder? Well, a big one for Latinx families is language barriers, obviously not for all, but many families. That's an issue. And I would say, too, to access services, immigrant families who may have mixed immigration statuses within their families may be afraid to seek out those services for their children because they're afraid they're going to be identified by Border Patrol. I think there was a lot of fear during the previous administration where use of services was going to be something that was used against people in their immigration applications and stuff like that. And so I think people might be able to imagine this, but I'd like to hear from you. What are then the material impacts of this kind of disparate treatment over the course of time, say over the course of, Mm -hmm. of childhood, for example? No, that's a really good point. I think that what often happens is the children don't get access to services that might help them develop their communication, might help them function in their school systems, help them succeed, not only academically, but just developing social skills and things like that. They would not get access to those services, and they might get lumped together in a group of special ed students and not really get specific supports that they really need. And then you know, when they get to that transition age, there's supposed to be services in the school system where youth are prepared for what happens after school services end, right? Employment and um, independent living and things like that. And we've talked to a lot of Spanish-speaking Latinx families where they didn't even know that schools were mandated to provide transition services. They didn't know what transition even meant. 
And sometimes they were convinced to have their child um, graduate at 16 or 17 when they could have gone to 22 and got more specialized services. And then it's too late. So a lot of missed opportunities happen. One of the things that I'm wondering, and I don't know um, how much this is connected to your research, but as you're talking, it makes me think that there must be then a relationship, at least in some cases, partially because of racism, but then also because of this health disparity, when kids get to a certain age, potentially getting wrapped up in the carceral system because they have communication issues. Is that something that you've seen or is that an issue? Absolutely. I think this is a big concern that families have brought to us, especially even as they become adolescents, they do run into interactions with the police. The police don't understand where they're coming from. And I think for black and brown children, this has been really challenging. There have been some reports of of youth being killed by police because maybe they said stop and the person didn't really understand what they meant by that and didn't respond and things like that have happened and parents are very worried about it. I'm not up on the research in terms of um, the prison system, but I do know that a lot of people with intellectual disabilities do end up in the prison system. And even in Texas, there there have been many who have been executed and who had an intellectual or developmental disability and and when they're legally not supposed to be, even in Texas. (laughs) Right. Even in Texas. Um, Yeah. So you've given us... I was just going to say they get around it by playing with the definitions and stuff like that and playing with the IQ numbers. Right. Yeah. And such long histories of of these connections, of course, Um, and some really good work out there too about disability in the prison system, Liat Ben-Mashe and some others. Um, So Mm -hmm. you've given us a lot to to think about here and we're going to wrap this up here soon. But I guess what I'm interested in then with all that you've told us who are the different actors that can intervene in these disparities and move us toward equity? And, and what can interventions look like to actually get towards equity that people are driving toward? That's a really good question. I, I like to think about interventions sort of on the um, micro, meso and macro level, sort of going from families to the society, right? I think it's important to have interventions at all of those levels. We do a lot of interventions focused on empowering parents and families of children with autism and teaching them advocacy skills and how to advocate for their children. Because a lot of times they don't even know their child has certain rights in the systems and really teaching that on an individual level. But then I think a lot of schools do not have the services or training to provide adequate interventions for children, autistic individuals. There's a lot of evidence-based uh, treatments out there that, that have shown to be effective. Many schools just don't have people trained in, in those. So that kind of training and sort of requiring that in the schools would be super important. I think at the macro level, I'll just give you one example. Um, one of the evidence-based practices is called applied behavioral analysis. Now, many autistic individuals completely disagree with the premise of applied behavioral analysis because it does come from this behavioral sort of approach, but there's a lot of research showing its effectiveness in a more sort of naturalistic setting and not being as rigid as maybe it has been delivered in the past. But in the state of Texas, the only people that can get applied behavioral analysis are those that have resources, can pay out of pocket or have really good insurance, um, private insurance. 
So Medicaid children cannot get it. And that's true in Illinois, where I just came from, that's true in Texas. Um, and so that's an example of a macro issue, right? So how do we reduce the disparity of children getting evidence-based treatments? We need legislation. So actually two years ago, the Texas legislature did vote for Medicaid to cover it. It hasn't been implemented yet, though, and I'm not sure what the barriers are there. So, so that's a macro issue that, in terms of a policy that could reduce some disparities in a particular area. Well, as so many of these things are, they're massive. And and you're talking about, of course, points to funding. And that it's good there's grant funding to support PODER and other research-based programs. But the implementation Mm -hmm. side is always the challenge. In uh, the last episode, we were speaking with Professor Paracardona about implementation science and what implementation looks like. And so it seems like uh, that's Mm -hmm. very relevant to our conversation here as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we are running to the end of our time together today. So thank you so much for being here, Professor Magania. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. And again, our guest today was Dr. Sandy Magania, Professor in Autism and Neurodevelopmental Disabilities in the Steve Hicks School of Social Work. I'm your host, Karma Chavez, and this has been Latin Experts. Hi, all. This is Ashley Nava Monteros, the Communications Associate at Latino Studies. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Make sure to check out the Latino Studies Instagram page. Follow us at Latino Studies UT to keep the conversation going.